John 1, verse 4 to 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And there he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sesha, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that a Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water while being up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am who, I am who speak to you, I am, I am, I, I who speak to you am he. Then Jesus, then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was speaking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town where we're coming to him. This is the word of God. Father, we come because where else can we go? And we especially come to hear your voice. Because without your voice and without your word and without your spirit, we are helpless and we are hopeless. So will you speak to us, will you comfort us, will you convict us? And like we always pray, above all else, will you draw us closer to Christ? 
Amen. Let me start off by saying that I am not a woman and I cannot pretend to understand uh, the fears, the anger, uh, the despair, but I am your pastor and I do love you. And uh, I know you need to hear God's word and you need to hear God speak, God's word speak to your mind and your heart. I'm also not a foreigner. I'm a South African. We have many non-South Africans in our church family. Who are these foreigners? They are us. Raphael, Panganai, Eleanor, Ivy, Talent, Proud, Miriam, Saz, Anymore, Jimmy, Freddie, Emmanuel, Trifina, Kelvin, Joel, Banele, Mordi, Arnold, Valerie. They are brothers, our sisters. And I want you to know that you are loved and you are safe here in your family. Thirdly, let me just say that I do want to give credit. Um, During this week, I did email some ladies and I asked them to write down or answer three questions for me. Why, Why am I angry? What is it that men don't know? And what would a man who follows Jesus do? I'll be quoting some of those ladies, so thank you for your emails. I'll also be quoting a young Christian man. He's a student at UCT studying law. His name is Tim Gertzen, and uh, he's written a most insightful article which has been of great, great help to me. It was broad daylight in the leafy suburb of Claremont, Cape Town, where Rianeni, a 19-year-old UC student, wanted to fetch a parcel at the post office. Well, instead of collecting the parcel, she was seized, she was raped, she was killed by a postal worker. It was not the first, and tragically not the last. Yesterday, at her funeral in East London, her mother said, I quote, I'm sorry that I warned you about all other places, but not the post office. In the Saturday Star yesterday, the headline read, Killed for being an African. Isaac Satoli ran from his burning home, but a mob caught the 35-year-old Zimbabwean and killed him. His wife, Lydia, There was a picture of her holding their six-week-old baby called Fortunate. She quietly said he was running for his life, but they got him. They beat him, poured petrol over him, and burnt him just just because he's a foreigner. This week, as we all know, has been harrowing. It has been agonizing. You almost don't want to listen to another newscast, do you? I'm going to be speaking mainly about gender-based violence, and by the way, that's an academic term. What we're talking about is abuse and rape and murder. 
I'll be talking mainly about that, but most of the principles apply to other Africans living in South Africa. One of the great emotions I think that has swept our country is that of fear. Gracha Michelle, the Chancellor of UCT, spoke at the memorial service at UCT on Wednesday. And uh, I think she said it best when she said that for women there are no more safe places. She says safe places have shrunk, they've diminished. It used to be certain locations, certain clubs, used to be limited to those who were drunk or late nights, then to any time after dark. But Uyanene was raped and killed during broad daylight in Claremont. Women are scared, women are afraid. Hashtag am I next. A woman said in the emails, I quote, One of the primary aspects of being a woman that I'm not sure men can fully understand is fear. We have been scared for as long as we can remember. A single man in a room surrounded by women is delighted. A single woman in a room surrounded by men is terrified. The second great emotion that has been stirred up, I think, is anger, and rightly so. Let me once again quote a young lady. This has been a tragic week, but I feel that a lot of us are feeling more than grief. Women are angry because our gender is treated like we are a commodity. Our bodies are open to scrutiny by all and sundry. With eyes giving us a quick up and down, we are weighed, measured, and found wanting if we do not meet the arbitrary and changing ideals of female beauty or behavior. End of quote. It also seems that many women and, and many of us are not only angry, but we are frustrated because in some sense, in some sense, the enemy seems to be unseen. And so we are uncertain where to direct our anger. So we lash out at the police, at the government, at the president, hashtag men are trash. The third emotion is despair. Once again, Grasha Michelle comes to our help. She put it so well when she spoke of her despair. She says, I've been involved in the struggle since my 20s. I'm now 70 years old. I was planning to fade out of the public spotlight. But women are still not free. And people are tired of discussion and programs and commissions. Last week, the house of Uyeneni's killer was torched by his community. And most of us, to be honest, say amen under our breath. Let me make three comments before we look at John chapter 4 that Pelesa read to us earlier on. Number one, Christians are the only people who are clear as to who the enemy is. We are not confused. Jesus tells us that we have three great enemies in John's Gospel. 
sin, the flesh, and the devil. We know who the enemies are. We know that the enemy is not all men, but that sin is in all men. We know who the enemy is. The heart of the accused, the heart of the rapist, the murderer, the heart of all men, the heart of all our leaders. In fact, it's in each of us. And we know that those three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will never be defeated by policies or programs. It will only, they will only be defeated by the king and by him alone. There is no other antidote. Second comment, God's love is our comfort. And some of the ladies prayed about that. God's love is our comfort in fear and despair. But it is equally true that God's justice is our comfort in anger. How beautiful is a God of justice in such a time? How could you believe in a God who does not hate, rape, or murder, or abuse? So our God is not some vague spirituality out there. He's not distant. He's not powerless. He's not unloving. Because he cares deeply and loves deeply, he acts for the sake of justice. Our God loved Uyeneni. He loves each and every woman, each and every foreigner in our country, and he will act for their justice. Just by the way, it is... Interesting that our Western culture in particular, which so arrogantly denies all absolutes, it's striking how quickly this godless culture recognizes injustice. So there is right and wrong, after all. Wonder where that comes from. Luke chapter 17, verse 2. Turn to that, Luke chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, this is Jesus speaking, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus is telling his disciples that those who cause his little ones to stumble should be warned. He's warning them. In the context here, Jesus is on the offensive, teaching against the Pharisees, who through their false teaching are leading people away from God. And Jesus says, woe to them. Why? Because he cares profoundly for his little ones. And for this reason, he acts with justice. Paul says in Colossians 3, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. So if God acts for those, those he loves in the face of teaching that will lead them 
lead them away from God, will he not also act for those who are the victims of xenophobia and abuse and rape and murder? On that day, being thrown off Table Mountain or Chapman's Peak with a huge, huge concrete boulder tied round your neck. That will be preferable, says Jesus. That will be far preferable than facing God on Judgment Day. So Jesus doesn't note out, Jesus doesn't flesh out the punishment. He only tells us what is preferable. It is preferable that you are thrown off Chapman's Peak with a 500 kg concrete block tied around your neck. We had synod in Cape Town this week, as you know. I spent some time on the Cape Flats. I was driving, and there was a group of schoolchildren protesting, and rightly so. They had banners, and uh, one of the banners uh, was calling for the reintroduction of the death penalty. Jesus is saying here in verse 2, he says that the death penalty would be a far lesser punishment than what God will mete out. That's what he's saying. So the secular view of God, if there is such a thing, is distant, powerless, weak, pathetic. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will act for the sake of justice for Isaac Sutoli from Zimbabwe, for Uyanele, for Jesse, for Hannah, for Ayaka, for Tembi yesterday and every other little one. Romans chapter 12. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We've often looked at this passage. It's not new to us, but it's most appropriate for this morning. Romans 12 and verse 17. Remember, Paul is writing here to the Christians in Rome, and they are being persecuted by the Roman oppressors. And Paul writes to them who are being persecuted, who are being oppressed. Christians are being imprisoned. Some are losing their jobs. Some are losing their homes. Many of them are killed and murdered, some with petrol. Nero took some Christians, tied them to posts of tar, and lit them so that they would have light on the pathways. Paul writes, and he says, verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. It's quite tough when your husband or wife has just been made into candlelight to light a Roman colonnade. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible is very clear there. You'll notice again, verse 17, that we as a church, we as Christians, we do not take the law into our own hands. 
We do not repay evil with evil. The Bible is very clear about that. For two reasons. The one is because of chapter, Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where he talks about the state, he talks about the government, those in authority. And talking about the uh, rulers of the time, he says, For he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what God is saying is that we as Christians do not take revenge. No, that is the duty of the state. God has instituted the state to carry out the justice, the punishment that is needed where there is evil and sin. However, very often the state doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's not just our country. We still don't take revenge. Because even if the state does not do what it's supposed to do, God will see that justice is done. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. As I said, God's love should be our comfort in fear and despair. And God's justice should be our comfort in anger. He will act, and when he does, how terrifying it will be to fall into the hands of an angry God. Third comment. I'm not sure where you live, but I live in a broken world. I live after the fall and before heaven. That's where I live. I don't know where you live. That's where I live, and it's messy. It's very messy. As I've often told you, the world, the earth is cursed. There is a curse over all the world, over all the earth. There is sin, there is evil, there is brokenness everywhere. So one of your responses may be, it's time for us to leave this country. I need to defend my wife and my daughters. I have one wife and two daughters. I never pick up hitchhikers, of course. But think about this. Get your theology right. What if a couple of months ago you said, I tell you what we do, let's go to the island of, Mah of, of Bahamas. They will be safe. Won't we? Or perhaps you said six months ago, you know where we need to go. Let's go to Hong Kong. It's safe there, you know. Or perhaps you said, no, well, actually, we need to go to New Zealand and let's go to our place of worship this weekend. We are sure to be safe there. Or perhaps let's go to America. Well, if you do, don't go on the roads, don't go to schools, don't go to colleges, don't go to restaurants, don't go to clubs, because there are madmen with guns. There's actually only one safe place, and that is in Christ. You have a choice wherever you live, and it is your choice, and I respect that choice, but we are never safe in this world because of the curse. The only rescue, the only safety is Christ. 
All right, a good question is, what does it look like for a man who follows Jesus? How would he treat a woman? Well, let's turn to John chapter 4. We're going to go over time this morning. I'll be another 10 minutes or so. What does it look like for a man who follows Jesus to treat a woman? What does it look like for a man who follows Jesus to treat a foreigner? Well, let's have a look at John 4, which was read to us earlier by Peleso, where Jesus actually meets this person who happens to be both a woman and a foreigner. So let's see how Jesus treats her. Three things. Number one is dignity. And we pick it up from verse 7. A woman from from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So firstly, we need to understand the context as Ivy was telling us, there's the, there's the victim, there's the accused, and there's the context. The context is that at that time, uh, women were treated very much like women are treated in, in many Muslim households. That would have been common in the ancient world. You didn't actually speak to a woman on her own. Why waste your breath? There was a Jewish prayer at that time. Thank God that I'm not a Gentile or a woman or a slave. I think only men prayed that prayer. If you know biblical history, the second context here is that Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were Jews who stayed behind in Israel and Judah after the exile of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They stayed behind. The other Jews went into exile, and those who stayed behind intermarried with Gentiles and foreigners. When the Jews came back, they saw them as half-breeds, and they hated them. There's no greater anger, there's no greater fight than a family fight. But then you see Jesus. Isn't it it interesting? There's no xenophobia here. There's no gender-based violence. He deals with her. He deals with her as a person, as a human being, like him, made in the image of God. And he treats her with dignity. You see, here's a woman who is on her own. No self-respecting Jewish man would talk to a woman on her own. Here's a woman who's a foreigner. She's outside of the covenant. She's outside. She's a foreigner in Jewish eyes to God's promises, God's covenant, God's love, God's mercy. Orthodox Jewish men would not associate themselves with divorcees, with immoral women, with Gentiles, according to all the criteria of, of, of the law. She's morally unclean. But Jesus goes, goes against all custom, all tradition, and he talks to her, assuming, notice, assuming that the two of them are on equal intellectual footing. Did you notice that? Rabbis, Jewish rabbis, did not teach foreigners. It's a waste of oxygen. Jewish rabbis did not teach women. It's a waste of time. Jesus, Jesus engages with this foreign woman 
in a theological discussion on equal footing. And did you notice in the text, there's no petrol, there's no sexist jokes, there's no looting of her bucket, there's no post, post office parcels, and there's no fear in her eyes. He deals with her as a human being with infinite value, infinite dignity, infinite honor. In fact, he, uh, he acknowledges her understanding of the Old Testament. He plays with words and images, poetic language, to capture her attention, to draw her to God. Notice verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he, he would have given you living water. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this, drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The culture would have said, don't waste your time and don't waste your precious eternal water on a foreigner or a woman. And certainly not a foreign woman. That precious eternal water, Jesus, was, is going to be bought with your blood. Isn't that a waste? Is this morally unclean woman, foreigner, worth it? And Jesus says, verse 14, The water that I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He was willing to shed his blood for her, for her, and he did. So what does it mean for a man who follows Jesus to love woman? Well, it means that we treat woman as having infinite value, dignity, honor, as any other human being made in the image of God. It means that we don't overlook the often thankless job of our wives and mothers for what they do. For us, our children, our homes. It means we don't laugh at inappropriate jokes made by other men in the locker room. It means that we not only teach our young girls to be careful how they dress, but we teach our young boys to guard their eyes and their minds. It means that we, we as men and those of us who are fathers, but even if you're not a father, there are young men all around us. We model to our boys how to value and love, love and cherish their mothers, their sisters, their girlfriend. It goes without saying that there are good men in the world it goes without saying that women are not more moral or less sinful than men, but we should be angry and very angry. We should be angry. When women are treated poorly. Not because women are angels and because men are animals, but because we are all made in the image of God. My dear friends, there is a very, very real place for righteous indignation. 
Paul says, do not pay back evil for evil. But is God not angry at sin and evil out there and in here? Number two. First of all, there was dignity. Secondly, just quickly notice verse 16 to 18. He didn't actually practice. He didn't patronize her. He called a spade a spade with her. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So we often patronize, we don't call it that, but it is so. We patronize our children because often they are innocent or they are ignorant. We patronize our dogs and cats because they don't know what they don't know. But we don't patronize men and women made in the image of God, whether Zimbabwean or Somali or Pakistan, male or female. He knew her sin, and he spoke, her, he spoke to her with truth. So he didn't patronize her. He said to her, I love you, and I've got water that you have no idea what it is. But here's the problem. He didn't belittle her conscious choices. He didn't make her a victim. No called a spade a spade. In fact, Christian counseling is wonderful when it speaks the truth. When you can say to someone, you're not a victim. Of course we are influenced by nature and nurture. Of course we are. We're not minimizing that. But you are not a victim. You're made in the image of God. What you have done is sin. When we say that, we give people hope. Why? Because they can repent. When you don't speak the truth, you don't give people hope. Third thing, notice verse 25, he reveals himself to her. Verse 25, the the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, when, when, when you read that on its own, it doesn't seem all that much, but you do need to know that Jesus in the Gospels doesn't reveal himself to everyone. Those who ignored him, those who rejected him, he withdrew from them. He didn't speak to them. He didn't answer Pilate, did he? In Nazareth. The religious Jews took offense at him. So he didn't reveal himself to them. No, he withdrew himself from them. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? This foreigner, this outsider, this woman is actually one of the first converts in John's gospel. She's a woman, she's morally unclean, and she's a foreigner. And she becomes one of the first converts in John's gospel. She becomes one of the first evangelists of the Christian church. She goes back to her village and says, come and hear this man who told me everything about myself. 
Jesus doesn't treat her like a third-class citizen, no. He reveals himself to her. His nature, his deity, his calling, his grace. But that revelation is not only for her or for foreigners, it's for each of us. You see, the gospel tells the truth. There is justice, but there is also grace, which meets at the cross. God's judgment is poured out upon Christ for those who trust in him. The others will have to drink it themselves. And at the cross, not only is God's wrath poured out, but God's love is poured out to those who turn to him. Even like the thief on the cross, and I don't think he was just a thief. Yes, there is grace for men who have hurt women. There is grace for women who have hated men. There is grace for husbands who have not loved their wives, for wives who have not loved their husbands. There is grace even for the grassy park woman who stabbed her boyfriend to death on Friday night. And yes, even, even the rapist of Uyanene. There is water that will wash. That is the scandal of the cross. But unless you repent as Royden was talking about to us men, unless you repent and turn to Christ in your brokenness, there is no grace. It's not cheap grace. It costs Jesus his life. If you've never come to the cross, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter how deep it is, doesn't matter how long it is. If you come to the cross in your utter brokenness and call on God for mercy, he will hear and he will answer. And my dear brothers and sisters, there is no other hope for our country. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word and you tell God where you are. Oh Father, all we can cry is, Oh God, oh God, will you have mercy on us? We pray for that for ourselves, for there is not a single person in this room without sin. We pray that for the men in our country, for every one of us, in deed, word, or thought, have not acted as we should. And we pray for all of us that you will have mercy on us. 
So, Father, will you help us and will you comfort us? Will you help us to be salt and light to the growing darkness around us? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.